This episode contains descriptions of physical abuse, death, and neglect. If you are a survivor yourself, or if these topics have the potential to trigger you, please proceed with caution. Today on Gooned. It really was after Paris came out with her story, and I started looking back at it, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I remember what it was like not being able to even talk to anyone or hug anyone for two and a half years. My name is Dominique, and I'm a survivor of the Montana Youth Residential Program. I am a survivor of a residential program in Montana. Also a survivor of a Montana Youth Program. My name is Meg Applegate, and I'm a survivor of the troubled teen industry. I was a child and experienced abuse. When I was 15, I had my childhood stripped from me. I had had periodic on-site inspections as outlined in HB 218, then perhaps I wouldn't have had to work from labor for almost three years of my childhood. In 2020, celebrity and media personality Paris Hilton, known for her long-running reality show The Simple Life and various clothing, shoe, and perfume lines, released a documentary. The nearly two-hour tell-all was called This is Paris, and it introduced to the world a side of Paris Hilton that they had never seen before. Suddenly, the high-pitched voice and wide doe eyes were gone, revealing an articulate and world-wise woman with a story that nobody could have foreseen. The pop culture icon now flipping her narrative on its head. You had a caricature of yourself with the high voice and the persona. That was a trauma response. The world and the media were stunned when Paris revealed that she had been physically, sexually, and emotionally abused at four troubled teen industry programs beginning when she was 16. It's the side of Paris Hilton we've never seen before. During my time at these places, I was strangled, hit. Every time I would take a shower or use the bathroom, there'd be... Now, Paris was not the first survivor to speak out, nor was she even the first celebrity to reveal they had been sent away. But it was Paris's documentary, memoir, and accompanying podcast, 1111 Media's Trapped in Treatment, that were a watershed moment in the history of the troubled teen industry. Never before had a name so big, a brand so cultivated, spoken out publicly. As a result of Paris's documentary, the survivor community on social media, especially TikTok, absolutely exploded, with people from all over the country, all ages and backgrounds, speaking out against the facilities they had attended. Survivors, whose stories had for so long been stigmatized or disbelieved, now had the confidence, community, and validation to talk about their own experiences without fear. Hashtags like unsilenced and ICU survivor took off. Daniel, and when I was 15, I was legally kidnapped. I would give my arm to have those years back. Home, I'd had depression, PTSD, and not enough support. Yeah, so in 2016, I was legally kidnapped. My sister and I were separated, first when she went to the program, and then again when I went to the program. And when I was 14 years old, my parents made the difficult decision to send me to a wilderness therapy program in Utah. It's hard to overstate the impact that Paris had. Not only teens and young adults with a social media presence, but middle-aged and older people who had never used a phone for anything but a call, knew about Paris's story and felt its impact deeply. Yeah, when I saw This Is Paris, I I was so happy to see it. I mean, it it made me cry. It, It was super hard to watch, but I love that this person, this celebrity who I never, ever, ever would have 
given a second thought to because of what I knew about her before suddenly became a celebrity to me in a completely different way because uh, we have been silenced for so long. And to see um, her story like that, it, it was really, really, really impactful. And it just gives more legitimacy, which is sad that us out here in the world who don't have that status, no one really cares. So for them to use their platform, it's really cool. I watched the Paris Hilton documentary with my boyfriend. Very upsetting stuff in that. But I guess it's like tearing off the scabs that have healed over in a way. With critical eyes finally trained on the industry, many survivors began to share their stories publicly, on social media, on the news. They even began to open up to their friends and family. It was such a positive impact to hear an incredible person like her share that her and so many other people have this overlapping shared experience. And that was crazy because I didn't think there would ever be a time where the TTI would ever have their shot at being publicly shamed. And that was a huge game changer to have her take a platform on it. I didn't ever think I'd have something in relation with that person. It definitely makes it more normal. I I wouldn't be talking about this if I didn't see that online. I I would have kept quiet my whole life. Just move on. We heard from Vaughn in episode two when he talked about his violent experience being gooned. He was sent to a remote residential facility in the 90s, and for decades, he buried it. You said that seeing the stories online and all the publicity with Paris encouraged you to open up. But I'm wondering, like, how do you talk to your wife about this? Like, what was her reaction when you first told her? Um, I kind of lie about it. She, know, she knows basically this. The I, I omit things, I guess. I, it's still a lie, but I just don't tell her the whole thing. I just say... <laughs> They beat the hell out of me, and I kind of just got out of there. I don't think she understands the whole Utah experience or any of that stuff. When Paris's story exploded in the news, it all came rushing back. Not very tech-friendly. I'm trying to... Okay, so I, I can just click on this. Let's see here. Vaughn went online and was horrified to find that the things he had gone through 30 years ago were still happening. I was almost ready to retire, and a longtime friend reached out and felt bad about not believing me. It's like I've been underground for years and I've come back up. Paris Hilton, what the fuck? (laughs) I escaped my facility and just shut up about it after finding no one believed me. It's hard to believe this is all still going on and it was not just the places I was sent to. It's hard to believe they didn't get stopped. They were still abducting kids, beating them, making them fight, forcing pills. Um, I don't know what to say. I've read some of the other stuff here. I'm so sorry. I've always felt bad. You just don't forget something like this. I dearly hope you all are all right and step in strong cheers. Yeah, I don't... I don't say anything to anybody. I tried when I got out. No one believed me. I I just... I thought I'd kind of just never talk about it again. (laughs) Until hearing affirmations from scores of other survivors and seeing the industry scrutinized by the public and by legislators, many survivors had resigned themselves to secrecy, shame, and silence, sometimes for 20 or 30 years. When I got out, I, I was very much brainwashed by this program. I believed everything that they had told me. I really had integrated the things that they taught at this program. So at first, I didn't see the program as a bad thing at all. I didn't really understand until many years later the ramifications that it had on me psychologically. 
Caroline Cole co-hosts Trapped in Treatment, the podcast executive produced by Paris that exposed Provo Canyon School, one of the facilities where Hilton was sent. During the two and a half years that Caroline spent in the TTI, she experienced much of the same abuse as Paris. It really was after Paris came out with her story, and I started thinking, looking back at it, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I remember what it was like not being able to even talk to anyone or hug anyone for two and a half years. I mean, imagine spending two and a half years in complete silence, no words ever, not allowed to look out windows or in mirrors. We weren't allowed to sing or listen to music. There was no TV. There was no internet. There was no social connection at all. We weren't even allowed to make eye contact with each other. Being in this constant oppressive environment where kids are being physically restrained, where they're being put into solitary confinement rooms, and just being completely isolated from your family. Caroline felt validated by what Paris had shared with the world. I remember every morning waking up and my eyes would open and I would see the plywood underneath the bunk bed up above me. And I remember just looking at that plywood every morning and it, it was just such a like, God, I'm still here. I'm still here every morning. And every night you want to just go to sleep so quickly because for those eight hours that you're sleeping, you can be somewhere else than in that program. But more than that, hearing Paris's story lit a fire under her. With all of this emotion, I'm very much the type of person where I have to work on something or solve something or do something if I am so deeply upset or, or moved by an issue in my life. Like I can't possibly have an issue and not just like act on it. Caroline has since become a special advisor to the International Coalition Against Restraint and Seclusion, a co-founder of survivor advocacy group Unsilenced, and an alum of RISE Justice Lab's Legislative Accelerator Program. I was connected to other survivors in the community who were working on organizing, and I had a professional background with policy, mental health, advocacy, and ethics. So I had a pretty thorough understanding of state government and policy and all of those things. So when I heard that they were wanting to enact policy to affect this issue, I immediately was like, I can help. I've got the skill set and I want to help. Caroline and her co-host, journalist Rebecca Mellinger, worked alongside Paris to make Trapped in Treatment. Caroline also teamed up with Meg Applegate, a survivor we've heard from throughout this series, to found Unsilenced a survivor support and advocacy organization that quickly built a presence of survivors and other anti-TTI activists. Unsilenced is a nonprofit organization that aims to stop institutional child abuse by empowering self-advocates to promote lasting social change. And our goal is really twofold. We want to prevent institutionalization of youth, and we also want to support people who are unfortunately already survivors. When Meg and Caroline set out to found Unsilenced, they didn't expect the outpouring of support that the organization would receive from its very inception. It really just came from the community. And um, seeing what happened with the federal bill coming out and Paris, and, and it just really fell in line with us starting. And I think in the first like week of Unsilenced, we had 45 people ready to volunteer. It was almost like there was already this huge market and I had to scale to meet the needs of this market at, at an incredible rate. Unsilenced built a team of survivors, advocates, investigators, legal professionals, and advisors, and dove headfirst into creating real, actionable change. The organization struck while the iron was hot, using the building momentum from Paris to first establish awareness and education. 
we have something called Project Speak, which stands for Survivor Prevention Through Education, Awareness, and Knowledge. And that's us going into the communities and educating the decision makers as to the issues with this industry. And we do this to interrupt that community to institution pipeline that currently exists in many forms. We're talking educational placements through special education. We're talking about child welfare, migrant children, juvenile justice system, and even the healthcare system. Then they began compiling an extensive cache of program documents from health and human services violations records across TTI programs to news articles to internal documents. They even started an attorney database. Another part of the preventative part is being able to provide a wealth of resources for survivors, everything from an attorney referral database, a gigantic map of all of the attorneys that will take cases on contingency and have experience and or a desire to try troubled teen industry cases. And then also through our archive, which is absolutely groundbreaking. We've got over 100,000 documents with information on over 3,500 different programs. And our goal with that is to create transparency into an industry where it just doesn't exist. Regulation and transparency efforts in the past three years have easily outpaced the previous 50 years combined, due in large part to the publicity that Paris's story received and the strength of the community created by that publicity. And Paris didn't just share her story. Since 2020, she has held rallies, including the one that saw protesters storm the Provo campus. She has facilitated and co-authored state and federal legislation and spoken on Capitol Hill. Having been a household name since the 90s, Paris was synonymous with fame and used it to her and other survivors' advantage. How many more kids need to die for progress to be made? In her memoir, she talks about fielding calls with state senators about private program referrals while riding a motorized scooter in plastic angel wings and stilettos. Paris is very badass. One thing is clear. Youth and residential care are not protected by Utah's current laws. Here, she's testifying before the Utah State Judiciary in support of a bill to regulate Utah programs. In fact, many survivors have been speaking in front of judiciary committees and on Capitol Hill, hoping that their lived experience can lend legitimacy to pending legislation. My name is Dominique, and I'm a survivor of a Montana Youth Residential Program. I am a survivor of a residential program in Montana. I'm also a survivor of a Montana Youth Program. I was told I could find... In March of 2023, Meg went to Montana, where she had once attended the Chrysalis Program, to speak at a hearing before the Montana State Senate on House Bill 218. HB 218, brought by Representative Laura Smith, would provide additional requirements for state licensure of private residential and wilderness programs and make Department of Health inspections more frequent. It would also allow unmonitored phone calls between children held in TTI facilities and their parents or caregivers. Mr. Chair and committee members, thank you for being open to listening to my testimony today. My name is Meg Applegate, and I'm a survivor of the troubled teen industry. Meg's testimony, and that of other survivors of Montana-based TTI programs, is firm. When I was 15, I had my childhood stripped from me when I was abducted in the middle of the night and sent to a therapeutic boarding school in Eureka, Montana. They speak to these legislators with unwavering conviction about the horrors they endured in their youth due to the poor oversight and scant regulation of programs in the state. I knew it would be impactful for the senators to hear from someone that spent so much time in Montana So 
I ended up going to Montana and testifying and, you know, so many others were able to do it over Zoom. It was just, it was so powerful. And standing up there, I really tried to, in my head, even though I was reading my words, I tried to just imagine that these were the words of every Montana survivor so that it was all of our lived experiences going into this. And it was really, it was really surreal. Meg not only spoke at the hearing, but had a hand in drafting the bill. It's a Herculean task to be presented with an industry in such dire need of regulation and have to decide which specific parts are the most important, which specific parts can get broad support. Drafting regulation for an industry with so much trauma and blood on its hands can feel like that old saying about putting lipstick on a pig, making cosmetic changes to something that is fundamentally flawed at its roots. The bill's authors had to decide which issues were most important and which would be the most likely to pass. We had to look at the industry in Montana overall and the best options that kids would have to be able to both report abuse or be less likely to experience abuse. And then we needed to narrow it down to ones that would pass <laughs> and which ones are going to be the most effective Meg pushed hard for unmonitored phone calls. During her time at Chrysalis, she went over a year and a half without a single unmonitored communication with her parents. Abuse thrives on secrecy, on suppression, and Meg wanted kids in Montana programs to have unrestricted access to their support system to blow the whistle as early as possible. To me, being able to tell your parents, that's one of the biggest things that I can imagine that would make it more likely for kids to report abuse. But even that got pushback. The unmonitored phone calls actually presented the biggest point of contention with state senators. Montana Senator Brad Molnar was so strongly against the idea, in fact, that he wrote an op-ed for the Independent Record calling HB 218, quote, arguably the worst bill of the session. Senator Molnar really had an issue with that and wrote that op-ed, and I wrote one in response, and he really painted this narrative of these kids that are arriving in shackles and we're addicted to drugs, and if we get our hands on the phone, we're either going to call for a bunch of pizzas or we're going to have drugs delivered. Meg is not exaggerating. Molnar writes that, quote, a youth with a drug problem will try to get drugs smuggled in or arrange a runaway ride. But despite Mulner's objections, on April 18, 2023, the bill passed with majority bipartisan support. Hearing that it passed and hearing that it got signed by the governor, it was, it's surreal. It's a really, it's a really cool feeling to think that you had a play in any kind of help, right, to change this is amazing. HB 218 is not the only such bill to have been passed in recent years. In 2019, SB 267 in Montana forced heightened oversight of the state's programs by placing them under the Department of Health and Human Services jurisdiction. In 2021, SB 127 in Utah prohibited sedation and mechanical restraints without authorization, and House Bills 557 and 560 in Missouri required private residential care facilities to declare their existence to the Department of Social Services and perform background checks on their employees, though they can still operate without a license. SB 749 in Oregon, signed in 2021, placed stricter regulation on educational consultants, one of the main pipelines for private referrals. SB 710 in Oregon prohibited certain deadly restraints and was signed on what would have been the 18th birthday of Cornelius Frederick had he not been killed in one such restraint two years earlier. 
Now, this sounds like a long list, and it is. But part of the problem with regulating facilities and programs within the troubled teen industry is that much of the regulation that does exist is state-level regulation. Because many companies operate facilities in multiple states, the sheer number of government agencies tasked with overseeing them means that no one agency sees the full picture. Even programs that operate in a single state have various parts of their operation overseen by a fractured mess of multiple agencies. State Departments of Human Services, Health and Education, Corrections, County Probation, Social Services, Juvenile and Family Courts, Local Police, Local Sheriffs, Medicare and Medicaid Services. The list goes on. According to a 2022 report by the Government Accountability Office, or GAO, states' data collection efforts are even further complicated by facilities under reporting of maltreatment and abuse. While states have taken steps to better protect children in residential facilities from abuse, some officials and child advocacy groups are looking for more. Given our role here at GAO in looking for ways to improve federal efforts, did we make any recommendations for federal agencies to help protect these youth? In the report, officials from the Federal Departments of Health and Human Services and Education wrote that it currently falls on individual states to oversee and sanction residential facilities. But in the same report, states describe minimal contact with the agency. Well, the federal role is somewhat limited, in part because it is state agencies that are responsible for oversight of individual facilities. In this snippet of the GAO's podcast Watchdog Report, Director Kathy Laren outlines the findings in which the GAO calls state monitoring practices, quote, inconsistent and with, quote, limited federal authority, end quote. Add to that the fact that each state has a different definition of what even constitutes child abuse and regulation and accountability seem nearly impossible. Maltreatment in residential facilities is an ongoing issue. States have taken steps to reduce its incidence, but more could be done to help. The report's big takeaway is a recommendation that HHS do more to facilitate information sharing between individual states and with the federal government. Yet, the GAO only provides recommendations and can do little to enforce them. One of the biggest issues on the federal level is that there is not clear jurisdiction of who is supposed to be overseeing these facilities at all. And we actually needed to establish that federal jurisdiction. So other bills that may follow because of this will actually have some teeth and will have some enforceability. Caroline saw this as one of the biggest hurdles in regulating the industry. Our bill does two things. It creates a federal working group and it also creates a study. The working group would be comprised of different federal agencies that are related to children's issues. Along with sponsoring Senators Ro Khanna, Buddy Carter, Jeff Merkley, and John Cornyn, Caroline recognized that it was time to take it federal. So the Administration on Children and Family, Health and Human Services, Administration for Community Living, all of these different federal agencies that kind of touch this issue. And they would have representatives on this working group who would also consult with child advocates, individuals with lived experience like myself, and other stakeholders She joined the team of legislators, activists, and stakeholders authoring the bicameral and bipartisan Stop Institutional Child Abuse Act, also known as SICA. SICA aims to amend the lack of data on placement, lengths of stay, critical incident reports, and money flow in the troubled teen industry, a gap that has persisted for decades. One of the most important things that they're tasked with doing is developing best practices and minimum standards for this industry. 
And so then their job is going to be coordinating with HHS to disseminate that information to states and, of course, enforcing them on the state level. At first blush, transparency and accountability sound like buzzwords. There's an urgent need to enact sweeping, enforceable, and strict regulation on a federal level to the entire industry. Why, then, is the first relevant piece of federal legislation not simply putting its foot down to do that? Unfortunately, decades of lax oversight and shoddy record-keeping means that the first step must be assessing the situation by gathering accurate data. The very basics of record-keeping and information-sharing that should have begun 50 years ago must now begin in the 2020s. The study is going to identify where our federal dollars are currently going. So we have several different kinds of federal funds that pay for placements in these facilities, whether that's Medicaid, Title IV-E, which is usually child welfare placements and facilities, uh, juvenile justice dollars, even special education dollars are going into these facilities. But right now, none of that's being accounted for, which is why it's so difficult to establish jurisdiction. If we can't account for those dollars, then we don't know what leverage we have on that federal level. Better late than never, though for survivors, activists, and lawmakers alike, this is frustrating. But Meg, Caroline, and the dozens of civil and human rights organizations that signed on in support of SICA are in this for the long haul. This is not the short game. This is the long game. And it's going to take a while. And it's going to take dedication, not just the bills. It's, it's awareness for the entire movement. And I know it really is a buzzword, isn't it? We're raising awareness, raising awareness. But the amount of people who have never heard about this industry that are in pipelines of this industry and actively referring kids to this industry is astonishing. This industry has continued to grow for decades, and it doesn't look like it's going anywhere anytime soon. Forming laws like SICA will take time, but its authors and advocates understand that. It's also going to look at accreditation bodies like the Joint Commission, the Council on Accreditation, and CARF, nonprofit but quasi-governmental oversight bodies that are, in my opinion, very problematic because they kind of shield the industry from any repercussions or, or criticism. So it's going to start to look at that. And, and I think in a couple of years, we're going to have some really good data and information and, and be able to really take charge in a way that feels a little bit more proactive. SICA and state legislation are, again, better than nothing. But the reality remains that abuse and even deaths have continued since these bills were signed and facilities continue to evade consequences. Despite the uptick in legislation in the past few years, cries for total abolition are growing stronger. A lot of survivors feel that regulating the TTI is only putting lipstick on a pig. It might look a little nicer, but it's still a pig. Many feel that the TTI will still be institutionalized for-profit child abuse, whether there are laws on the books or not. I believe in total abolition of these places. I don't think that there's a way to do it ethically, to be honest with you. I wish that it wasn't as dichotomous as that, because that would be easier to regulate, I think. That's probably what people want, is just to say, we'll just have more laws, we'll have more rules. But I think it's been corrupt from the very start. Kids are being tortured, and I don't think that's going to stop. I don't believe that legislation will make that stop. After surviving four years in the TTI and going on to become a therapist, Casey believes that abolishing the entire industry is the only way to stop the abuse and subsequent trauma. He isn't alone. Because its roots are so corrupt, like to look at it like it's a tree, those are moldy, old, upset roots. 
And we just need one storm to wipe it out. I really think abolition is the way to go for this industry. I don't know that it has any point of reformation. Many survivors say that this industry is past the point of being regulated into morality. But abolition is a monstrous task, and where we stand today, it seems impossible. The TTI is a billion-dollar industry with a presence in the juvenile justice, family court, public education, and foster care systems. It's a churning pool of money in and money out. It implicates and involves public and private entities with a lot of power and a vested interest in keeping it going. Permanently taking down even one program is hard enough, let alone every single one. I think it's best if we zoom out and and look at any kind of industry that is potentially there that has this much money in it and it's this prevalent in society. If we zoom out and we look at the fact that it started with a foundation of zero regulation and reporting and now we're 50 years later going, oh crap, I don't know if it's possible to be able to regulate our way down to a certain place. Because even if we had perfect regulations and perfect reporting and accountability and all of this stuff, we still have the cultural aspects of being in this industry, having a stronghold on it. Many of those who are working towards regulation understand this point of view. But in the absence of a fast and clear path towards abolition, TTI facilities are still housing adolescents. And until abolition becomes a clear reality, regulation will at least help. Regulation is the only way to go about this. I think that the regulation that needs to take place to keep kids safe will abolish it because the industry isn't set up to have those regulations. One of the main goals of Unsilenced is social change. Meg says it all the time, and it's in their mission statement. Quote, to stop institutional child abuse by empowering self-advocates to create lasting social change. I think that, you know, I say it all the time, it's social change. We also need to look deep down inside and understand the reasons why we're sending our kids away too. We need to depathologize mental health and adolescents in general and start looking at alternative ways of helping kids. As Meg says, the first step, even before abolishing or regulating the industry, is to zoom out. A lot. The path to the troubled teen industry begins long before a child walks through facility doors. It begins before the goons are hired. It begins before the educational consultant. The path into the troubled teen industry is paved by a broken mental health care system where outpatient, community-based interventions are poorly funded and inaccessible. Sika, in fact, acknowledges this itself. This is the one that I'm probably the most excited about. The working group is going to be responsible for identifying current barriers to community-based services, making sure that we're removing barriers to kids being able to get care or treatment on a lower level. We can begin keeping kids out of the TTI not by regulating or abolishing the industry, but by preempting it. Paris and other survivors sharing their stories and working towards stricter regulation is promising. But if we start at the root of the problem, the TTI may never even enter the equation. In the next and final episode of Gund, we will look at what can be done, not by government or by TTI programs, but by families, mental health professionals, and institutions to help struggling children and teens long before congregate care enters the conversation. Thank you for listening to this episode of Gund. I want to extend a special thanks to Meg for guiding my research, answering my questions, and working tirelessly for the survivor community. I truly cannot express how instrumental Unsilenced and their team has been in the research for this project, nor can I overstate the quality and number of resources they offer for survivors and their families. 
You can find these mental health, community, and legal resources on their website at unsilenced.org. Gund is researched, reported, and edited by me, Emma Lehman. Original music for the show was created by Olivia Springberg. Original artwork was created by Sam Doe. Sarah Lukowski and Avery Erskine copy-edited and consulted on the show. For early access to episodes, exclusive bonus episodes, and behind-the-scenes content, head to patreon.com slash goondpodcast. Listen to Trapped in Treatment, produced by Paris Hilton and hosted by Caroline Cole and Rebecca Mellinger, wherever you get your podcasts. As always, remember to rate, review, and follow Goond, and check out goondpodcast.com for more information.